for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy 620 or you're listening to the podcast, wherever podcasts can be found, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, you name it, you can find it. Uh, we're grateful for you tuning in and listening. We have a lot to talk about today. There's some studies that have come out that uh, have just kind of blown my mind and frankly upset me. And, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about some of those studies and what that means for our culture, what that means for the church, capital C Church, what's that, what that means for uh, evangelicals. And, and, and so we're going we're gonna to start there and then we'll see uh, where it takes us. But, uh, but there's a new survey, mainline Protestant pastors notably more liberal than congregants. And this is over at the Daily Citizen uh, and focus on the family. A new poll from the Public Religion Research Institute in Washington, D.C. finds that mainline Protestant pastors are significantly more liberal than their congregations by political affiliation and on important social issues. Specifically, the majority of mainline Protestant clergy identifies liberal uh, at 55% and only 22% report being conservative. I mean, that kind of blows my mind. Like, I knew there might be uh, some, some drift, but that number is quite staggering. The majority of mainline Protestant clergy identify as liberal at 55% and only 22% report being conservative. This is in stark contrast to those who occupy the pews. 43% of congregants report being conservative, while only 23% report being liberal. About one-third of white mainline churchgoers, 32%, identify as moderate, while only 22% of their pastors do. So again, they're not saying they're moderate. They're not saying they're anti-political. They're not saying that they're anti-liberal or anti-conservative. They're saying they are liberal politically. The comparative graph looks like this. Of course, you can see that on the, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, the survey also finds that mainline clergy are more supportive than their congregations of LGBT politics. 90% of mainline Protestant clergy favor pro-LGBT laws. 90%, while 77% of their congregants do. 79% of clergy support gay marriage. Almost 80% support gay marriage, while 72% of their flocks do. Nearly 70% of mainline Protestant clergy oppose religious citizens refusing to use their creative services and practices that violate their conscience, while 57% of those who listen to them on Sunday mornings do. That, I mean, think about this, folks. When we think about the, the baker in Colorado, when we think about... Um, a photographer that says, I'm, I'm not going to do any marriages that, that are celebrating something outside the traditional biblical worldview of marriage. When we think about artists making videos or documentaries or, or fill in the blank, in this survey, 70% of mainline Protestant clergy oppose the Baker, Colorado, for doing that. Now let's get to what they think about abortion. Mainline pastors are also more likely to be more liberal on abortion than their congregations. 73% of mainline pastors opposed the overturning of Roe v. Wade, while 67% of mainline churchgoers did. I mean, this number is, is staggering, but also you and I both know when Roe was overturned, there were many people 
that we considered friends, that we figured were on our team, that were not happy with the overturning of Roe. But, but to hear that a study, that a data, that a survey is saying 73% of mainline pastors were opposed to the overturning of Roe, no wonder I had pastors telling me, don't take a victory lap on this. No wonder I had folks within our denominations, within the church world, saying, hey, maybe you need to sit back a little bit and not be so celebratory with the overturning of Roe. Maybe you need to think about other folks. Maybe they were telling me that because they themselves weren't happy that Roe was overturned. And then don't be surprised that if the clergy are off on this issue, that their congregants are going to be off on the issue as well as 67% of mainline churchgoers were opposed to the overturning of Roe. Now let's look at political party affiliation. In terms of political party affiliation, the report says overall mainline clergy are much more likely to identify as Democrat than as Republican. About half identify with the Democratic Party, 49%, compared to only 14% who identify with the Republican Party, more than one in four clergy identify as independent. Now, I would almost prefer most of them just identify as independent, but that was not the case. Their congregations are markedly different. Uh, mainline Protestant churchgoers in the general population tend to identify more as Republican or independent uh, compared to one in four who identifies Democrat. What about America as a promised land? When asked if they agreed with the statement, God intended America to be a new promised land where European Christians could create a society that could be an example to the rest of the world, only 12% of mainline clergy agreed, while 37% of their congregants did. Now, again, I think that question is probably a little off, uh, a little confusing, uh, and, and, and so they probably could have worded that better. Uh, what about clergy open to switching faiths? A full 44% of mainline clergy members have thought about leaving their current religious tradition, while only 23% of their congregants have. Only 15% of all American churchgoers have considered changing their faith. Data also shows that mainline Protestant churches are not as racially and economically diverse as they might wish either. 90% of clergy report their congregations are primarily white, while 5% say their congregation is multiracial. Only 2% say it's primarily black, and 1% say it's primarily Hispanic or Latino. Only 3% classify their congregations as either working class or poor. Finally, clergy are about twice as likely as white mainline Protestant churchgoers and about three times as likely as all churchgoers to say their church is more divided by politics now than it was five years ago. This data shows us mainline Protestant pastors are not becoming more liberal in their politics and ideology because their congregations are desiring it. They are doing so in stark contrast to their own congregation. So I'm just going to put this out there. In our current cultural context, what we have is we have a Christless liberalism. We have a Christless conservatism. We have a Christless government. We have a Christless, at times, church. We have Christless clergymen. And so we have Christless political parties, Christless school boards, Christless communities. And then we wonder why our culture is going in the direction that it's going in. You know, growing up like I did, we, we, would, have, we would say things. My grandparents would say, 
Don't get too big for your britches. Now, what does that mean? I think some of these folks that are pastoring these churches have have drank the Kool-Aid of the culture. And they've gotten too, quote-unquote, smart for their own good. So instead of looking at things through a biblical worldview and everything through the lens of Scripture, they have looked at the world and said, you know what? We need to make Scripture fit with the world we currently live in. Oh, marriage can be, you know, whatever. I mean, I know Scripture says that that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one is to get to the Father except through Him. But that could mean a lot of things. Who's Jesus anyway? What's Jesus to you? Could be different than what Jesus is to me. It's your truth. Live that. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. So I'm not going to preach the hard truths of Scripture. I'm only going to focus on the things that, that make us comfortable. I'm only going to focus on grace and compassion. Now, now hear me. We need to talk about grace and compassion and mercy. But we also need to talk about truth. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't water down truth. He didn't go to the woman at the well and, and say, Oh, good, the man in your bed right now is, is your fifth and, and you're not even married to him. It's okay. No, he didn't say that. He called the sin out and he said, go and sin no more. What you're searching for in this culture, in this lostness, what you're trying to achieve with laying down with all these men is going to leave you thirsty. But what I have for you will quench your thirst for eternity. That's what he was saying. When when they were all about to stone the woman that committed adultery, what did he say? You who have stone and everybody dropped. You have no accusers. He, he did say, where are your accusers? But he didn't say, now go and keep doing what you were doing. No, he said, go and sin no more. Your accusers are gone. But again, he didn't water down the truth. You know, I've heard it said like this, come as you are. But don't leave as you came. Right? We, we want you to come as you are to church. It is a place for broken people. But when God transforms our lives, we are not to leave as we came. We are to look differently. There should be a stark contrast between the man I am today and the man I was before Christ. But we, we, get, we get nervous and weak need because the culture makes us nervous. And, and you would have some folks believe that, well, well pastors are, are, are not going and talking about some of these things because their congregations don't want them to, but the data says different. The data says the congregations see it differently than the person leading. Now, I know a lot of good pastors. I'm friends with a lot of good pastors that are, that are preaching truth, that are doing so through a biblical lens, that are, that are saying the hard things, that are celebrating mercy and compassion and celebrating truth and, and preaching the whole counsel of Scripture and, and doing that and believe that the Word of God is inerrant and, and, and doing all the things that we should be doing. So I don't want you to hear me as saying all pastors are bad and all clergy are bad and all churches are bad. That's not my heart. That's not what I'm saying. 
But what I am saying is when we see studies and data like this, it needs to wake us up. And it's the same question that, that I've asked on this show in the past. Do we know what time it is? And so I'm just going to let you know, I'm not interested in Christless conservatism. I'm not. Christless conservatism and a Christless life will get you eternity in hell. That's what, it, that's what the end game is for that. I'm not interested in that. And I'm certainly not interested in a Christless church. We, we act as if Jesus just showed up somewhere in Matthew. We either believe in the Trinity or we don't. But, but often when Jesus is talking in the New Testament, what's he doing? He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Why? Because he's been around since the beginning of time. He is the great I Am. And so when Jesus was about to ascend to the Father... What did he tell the disciples? Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go and make disciples, baptizing them all in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20 that we tend to forget about, he says, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. That is what discipleship is. It isn't just, okay, we got you saved, now good luck. No, it's teaching them all that I have commanded you. It is come as you are, but don't leave as you came. Your life looks different now. Every day looks different now. And so when we see these studies and when we see these surveys and we look at this data, it does make me a little frustrated. It, it, it does bring about some righteous anger. Because the folks that are claiming to be shepherds may be leading the sheep astray. That's a problem. And when we come back, we're going to look at how do we then connect the dots? How do we change the trajectory? We'll be back. All the people say, oh, so as we continue the conversation today, look, the, the, the study that I referenced in, in the first segment is, is something that we need to be aware of. It's something that pastors need to be aware of. It's something that, uh, that churchgoers need to be aware of. It's something that our, our culture needs to be aware of. Our, our churches should not be looking more like the world. The world should be looking more like our churches and like gospel communities. That is what the Great Commission is about. And instead... There are times where we're not influencing the culture. The culture is influencing us. I mean, over the, over the last uh, week, somebody sent me a Facebook ad for a church in Austin, Texas. Listen to what they posted. Now, I use the, the phrase church loosely. But here's what they're having. A worship service generated entirely by artificial intelligence. Let's do it. This Sunday, we're entering somewhat uncharted territory by letting ChatGPT create the order of worship, prayers, sermon, liturgy, and even an original song for our 10 a.m. service. 
The purpose is to invite us to consider the nature of truth and challenge our assumptions about what God can make sacred and inspired. Although it would be easy to race to judgment about a service like this, <laughs> yes, it would. Why not attend instead of it and experience it for yourself? It is a one-time experiment and not something we'll likely do again, but we believe it's a worthy and timely one in our ever-changing world, especially with the rise of AI. Fear not, Skynet hasn't taken control of our church. For this Sunday, however, a surprising reflection of truth and inspiration just might. All are welcome. AI-generated worship service happening there. I mean, folks, what are we doing? What are we doing? Now, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, you're rushing to judgment. You haven't experienced it. Is, is AI saved? Is ChatGPT saved? Do they know Jesus? Has the Holy Spirit made a move and entered the heart of ChatGPT? No, of course not. ChatGPT was created by a human, but it's not human. So guess what? ChatGPT is Christless. Now, I'm not talking about whether or not you should, you know, well, help me write this or help me do that. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the ethics of all that. But what I am saying is if you create an entire service based on ChatGPT, I would just caution you. Because go back to Genesis 3. What happened in the garden? Did, did Satan look at Adam and Eve and shove those apples down their throat and say, Ha, I got you. You couldn't do anything about it. I got you. No, what did he do? Are you sure God said not to eat of this tree? He planted seeds of doubt. And those seeds of doubt festered to the point of they questioned everything. And what did they do? They ate of the, they ate of the tree. And what do we see today in today's culture? Are you sure that's how God defines marriage? Are you sure that's how God defines male and female? Are you sure there's roles in this? Are you sure there's gender roles? Are you sure that little boys can't be little girls? Are you sure? Planting seeds of doubt. And then when someone says, this is just a one-time experiment. Well, look, I'm here to tell you, we've seen this. Governments have told us toll roads will just be temporary. Trust us. They've never gotten rid of a toll road in their life. State income taxes will be temporary. Trust us. They've never gotten rid of it in their life. And so there is a lost and dying culture that is interested in an AI-generated church. And I'm just telling you, if church can be generated by AI, then it ain't church. It's Christless. Who's going, who's going to walk with you through the hardship? Who's going to mourn with you? Who's going to attend the, the hospice care with your grandparent? AI going to do that? Is that what shepherding the flock looks like now? It's nonsense. And we need to be shouting this from the rooftops. It's nonsense. I heard a, a person say one time, never get too far from your overalls. What does that mean? 
It means don't forget where you came from. And, and frankly, we have some, some church folk that are forgetting where they came from and whose they are. Our culture is not in need of AI-generated church. Our culture is in need of a revival that runs in conjunction with discipleship. That's what we are in need of. And again, if we believe the Bible to be true, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, he is telling the disciples, look, I made disciples of you. It's tough. He could have said in that moment, because of what we now know, hey, all of y'all are going to die terrible deaths because you followed me. And I need you to go and make disciples like I've made disciples of you. Well, how do we make disciples? What are we doing? We, we are teaching them all that I've commanded. What are we teaching them? We're teaching them that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. The, the tomb is empty. Folks, if the tomb wasn't empty, then I don't care if you do AI church because none of it would matter anyway. But the tomb is empty. He conquered death. And then right before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he looks at the disciples and says, this is what is most important right now. I need you to go tell people about me. I need you to go make disciples. And I need you to teach them what I've commanded. Well, what, what does that look like? We'll go back to Deuteronomy 6. What happened in Deuteronomy 6? It's the great commandment. Love your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then what do they say in Deuteronomy 6? Put it on your fence post. Put it on your mantles. Teach it to your kids. Talk about it when you're laying down. Talk about it when you rise up. When you sit down for dinner, talk about this. Talk about how good God is. Talk about the great commandment. It's for generational change. That, that is the mindset when we think about the work that we're doing. So do I get angry when I see a survey that says mainline Protestant pastors? Now, now granted... What, what is that anyway? What is mainline? I'm just going to let you know, let you in on a little secret. The AI-generated church that's happening in, in Austin, that's not a church, folks. It wasn't a church before the AI service, and it ain't a church after. But the data is still pretty staggering that there are folks out there who claim to be shepherds who are leading their sheep to slaughter. That's a problem. There is good news of a good God, and we should celebrate good news of a good God. We should celebrate the whole counsel of Scripture, and we should celebrate what God has told us and what God has commanded us. And you don't have good news without the bad news. And so many folks refuse to talk about the bad news. That would then elevate the good news. What you need to be saved from. And so no wonder our culture is spiraling. No wonder abortion numbers are up. No wonder marriage numbers are down. No wonder fathers are absent in the home. No wonder... Because what, 
What's the fruit of Christless liberalism? What's the fruit of Christless conservatism? What's the fruit of Christless communities? Well, look around. That's the fruit of it. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue today, I, I now want to shift. I could I could continue to to talk about the the survey and, and what we're seeing and, and and all those things and and I will. I mean, we'll we'll talk about those things, no doubt. Uh, but right now, I want to shift just a little bit because I I, I ordered a book. Uh, I pre-ordered it and it came in last week. I've I've started reading it and and it, we've talked about it briefly here. I think everything runs into. I've I've had been traveling and speaking at different things, so sometimes I'm like, did I talk about that here? Did I talk about that on the show? Where, where did I talk about it? Uh, so forgive me if I've talked about this, but but there's a new book called The Two Parent Privilege, and it's written from a secular viewpoint. The person that authored it is an economist, and she's looking at the data. She's looking at the numbers, and what are the, what are the numbers telling her? That, that children that grow up in a two-parent home have better success rates. Now, every time we talk about this, you got to give caveats, right? Well, I'm a single mom, I'm a single dad, or my parents divorced, and I turned out okay. Yeah, you did. I, look, my parents divorced, my mom remarried, like... And, and I turned out okay. My, my wife's parents divorced. We turned out okay. I, I'm not throwing shade at you because you're striving to do the best you can with, with the scenario you're in. But of course, best case scenario is mom, dad in the home with their children. Why is that? Because God created the basket. The basket being mom and dad for the child to grow and thrive. We know that. Why, why do we know that? As biblical people, biblical worldview, there's an order to this. <laughs> Go look in Genesis. What did God do? Created Adam, created animals. Adam's naming all the animals, and Adam goes, yeah, something's missing. I mean, I like the, these goats and these sheep, but something's missing. And then Adam goes to sleep, takes his rib out. Then we have Eve. Adam wakes up and says, this is woman. This, this is what was missing. Right? That's the basket. It was created there. That's structure and order. Mom, dad, children. Now, you're probably going, yeah, but I know some families, mom, dad in the home, and it's terrible. Yeah. Why? Because of Genesis 3. We have a fallen world. That's just the reality. But every data point you look at, from a biblical perspective, from a secular perspective, all lines up and says, best case scenario, best outcomes with high school graduation, with college graduation, with chance of, of having a job and not being unemployed, the chance of not going to jail, the chance of being out of poverty, all of those go up tremendously if mom and dad are in the home. It just is. We know that. And now an economist is writing a book saying, hey, folks, we got a problem. Now, she says in the book, I'm going to these conferences, and we're talking about it from, a, from an economy standpoint and viewpoint, and she said, I bring, I've been bringing this up to folks, that, hey, it appears as if there's a benefit to a mom and dad in a home together raising their families. Now, she talks more from a resources standpoint, because you have two incomes oftentimes, and you have more resources, so you can... Hey, imagine this. Even the secular folks are saying, because that way people within the home have different roles to play. 
So somebody's like maintaining the yard, somebody's cooking, somebody's taking care of the dishes, somebody's doing laundry. And by the way, somebody can take this kid to ballet and this kid to baseball and this kid to school. And, and, and we can delegate and we can work together and all the pressure doesn't fall on one person. And she says that when she brings it up at these conferences, other economists go, yeah, like we agree, but we don't know if you should say that out loud. Why? Because they're afraid of the culture. It's self-censorship because of the culture that we find ourselves in. Al Mohler the other day was talking, and, and, and he made a, a great point by saying, we have a segment of our population that believe left and in progressive politics, but they live right and in traditional values. What does that mean? We talked about it on this show. They, they vote and, and spew nonsense about how no gender roles, it doesn't matter, go live your life, go do what you want to do, put marriage off as long as possible, don't have children, all these things. We don't need school choice, blah, 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 blah. Yet their life looks very different. Why? Their life is from a traditional viewpoint. Some might even say a biblical viewpoint of man, woman, married, raising their children in the home. And what are they doing? They're putting their kids in charter schools. They're putting their kids in private schools. They're getting tutors. You see, they, they believe left but live right. And so this, this piece over at Christian Post from Jim Daly a focus on the family, he talks about this. He says, For the last few decades, it seems that when it comes to the social science concerning the family, progressives have modeled well the famous observation of the late Arthur Doyle, he beloved, the beloved British writer and physician best known for creating Sherlock Holmes. And he said this, There is nothing more deceptive, he once wrote, than obvious fact. Facts concerning the family have been self-evident for years. Strong nations are comprised of healthy and secure families, and secure families are made up of married mothers and fathers who devote themselves to one another and their children. But then along came the sexual revolution and all the norms that served society so well for so long were questioned, challenged, and in many cases upended and outright discarded. The success sequence, the belief that education, marriage, and then children should flow in that order was cast aside as some relic of a distant era. Today, more than 40% of children are born outside of marriage. It's far worse in the black community. The cumulative effects have been devastating. At first, the consequences may have seemed minor, but like so much, negative things happen little by little and then all at once. Social conservatives have been warning about the developing storm for a generation. In return, we've been mocked, marginalized, and even labeled bigots for our efforts. Until now. In a welcome admission last week, New York Times columnist, suggested that liberals have suffered from a blind spot when it comes to the deterioration of the two-parent family. That data is in, and he admits it's devastating. He said this, Families headed by single mothers are five times as likely to live in poverty as married couple families. Children in single mother homes are less likely to graduate from high school or earn a college degree. They are more likely to become single parents themselves, perpetrating or the cycle, almost 30% of American children now live with a single parent or with no parent at all. One reason for the sensitivities is large racial disparities. Single parenting is less common in white and Asian households, but only 38% of black children live with married parents. The author in the New York Times article qualifies the construct of a two-parent household as a privilege. But Jim Daly says he's wrong about that, at least in the sense of how we traditionally define privilege, a special right or privilege. Every child is entitled to both a mother and a father. 
It should not be considered a luxury or special advantage. My heart breaks that it's quickly becoming the exception, and I share that as someone who knows the pain and ache that comes from growing up in a broken home. Google Jim Daly, and you'll learn his story. It is quite amazing what he came through. Poverty, single parenting, and divorce aren't Republican or Democrat problems. That's, the, that's why the work we do, giving singles the tools they need to establish healthy marriages, offering couples in crisis hope and help to save their marriage, and equipping parents to raise thriving children, shouldn't be red or blue solutions. We can work together. We must work together to help families in need. If you reduce the divorce rate, you inevitably reduce poverty. Some would argue that our approach is flawed, that as a culture, we're hopelessly post-marriage or that society's efforts would be better spent focusing on economic factors as causes and remedies for poverty. They would be wrong. Advocating for policies and personal behavior that result in robust marriage and family is a more productive solution than robust social support. Since President Johnson declared a war on poverty in 1964, more than $25 trillion in taxpayer funds have been spent to fight it. However noble and well-intentioned, the campaigns have failed miserably. Government is rarely, if ever, the solution to a problem, especially when it comes to eradicating social decay. Instead, we need to pour ourselves into the task of strengthening families by promoting the beauty and sanctity of marriage. How do we go about doing that? Unlike a Sherlock Holmes mystery, there are no secrets or fantastical solutions to the societal conundrum. As it has been from the very beginning, we must strengthen marriage by first investing in our own relationships. We must model the God-ordained institution well by remaining faithful and committed in our own unions. We must also encourage our children to choose well and do the same, and we must champion policies that entice others outside our families to marry and do the same. In other words, hearkening back to Arthur Doyle, elementary my dear Watson. That's the point, folks. So, so when we degrade marriage, when we cancel out gender roles, when we de- degrade parenthood, when we devalue lives in the womb, when we devalue lives at end of life uh, by doctor-assisted suicide, what we are doing is degrading all of culture. And so less people are getting married. Less people are having children. And then when they do have children, they are doing so out of the marriage, the sanctity of marriage. And that is a recipe for disaster. And we know that. Politicians know that. Researchers know that. Economists know that. The clergy know that. Churchgoers know that. Teachers, educators know that. There's a a large swath of people in our culture and society that know that without a doubt, but refuse to do anything about it. Why? Well, because they want to spit in the face of God. You see, even though the book that, that I mentioned and I'm reading through, and once I finish it, I'll give a full review of it, but even though it means well, and I'm agreeing with pretty much everything the author is saying, it's still missing a huge point. That, that intrinsically marriage is good because it's ordained and created by God. And so when we live in, the, in line and in structure and in the, in the order designed by God, things tend to work out better. Doesn't mean it'll be perfect. 
Doesn't mean we won't have cancer and we won't have kids that, that are prodigals and we, we won't have struggles and, and all those things. I'm not saying that because we live in a fallen world. But when those tough times come, you have a family unit to lean on. So when we remove that, it just puts more pressure, frankly, on the women that our culture claims to be for. We'll talk about that when we come back. So as we finish up today, first off, that's a great song. Thanks for playing that one. Um, but but as, we, as we finish up today, look, society, of course, over the last year, year and a half, they have really moved away from celebrating womanhood uh, as they redefine woman and, and they, frankly, can't define what a woman is and and they've, uh, they're, they're seeking to ruin sports and, and other things. But, but for the most part, for a long time, society was pro-woman. But a society that degrades marriage and devalues marriage, and a society that, that recognizes there, there are great value in marriage, but we're not going to promote it, we're not going to create avenues for it, we're not going to create policies to celebrate it and foster those relationships. Ultimately, what that society is doing is putting all the pressure on the shoulders and the back of women. Because most single-parent homes are who? Women. The abortion industry has created an out for the guy. How's that? Well, they have said, you have no say in the matter. So a guy can say, okay, well, it's your decision. I'm out. Again, that puts all the pressure on the woman. So, so society is doing this by removing marriage and devaluing marriage and devaluing two-parent homes. Society is putting all the pressure on the woman that they claim to celebrate. So, so how is that working out for you? And, and that's the frustrating part to me, is, is as a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching person, I am painted as a woman-hater. I am painted as a zealot. I am mocked for my old traditional values. You're just stuck in, you know, you were born in the wrong generation. Yet, we all know and can look at the data and the studies Look, I'm not even sitting here saying that a woman should stay home. What I'm saying is two-parent homes, sharing resources, sharing responsibilities is better for children. And we know that. Everyone knows that. Yet, we run away from it. So, so even when the answer is right in front of us and hitting us in the face, you have this economist that's writing this book, being told at conferences, yeah, but maybe you shouldn't say that out loud. Even though they all agree. It's very similar when I was in college and I would argue uh, a certain viewpoint on abortion or in, in some of my political science classes. And then afterwards, after I got you know, attacked from everybody, almost everybody in the room, I'd have a couple people come up to me afterwards and say, I'm so glad you said that. I agreed with everything you said. And I was like, where were you in the fight? Where were you in the fight? That's like I'm getting attacked by everybody, people shooting bullets at me, and I finally get out of there somehow, and then people around me are like, I'm so glad you were there to do that. I'm with you. I'm like, are you with me? Because where were you in the fight? 
And then this goes all back full circle to where we started the show. Where are we in the fight? Are we fighting for our own marriages, much less others? Are we fighting for revival and discipleship because we know that hell is real and, and if we don't, there's going to be a lot of people there and there already are a lot of people there and there's going to be much more every single day there for how long? Eternity. You see, it's not time to put the cleats up on the shelf. As much as it's hard for me to say this, it's not time to disengage and go live off the grid and have a cabin in the woods as much as there are days where I want that. It's time to engage, to preach the gospel, to share the good news of a good God, to share the, the good news of grace and mercy and what the cross brings for sinners to share our own testimony and our own stories and unapologetically stand bold and stand firm to preach the whole counsel of God. Now is not the time to retreat. And frankly, it's a bit frustrating that an economist from a secular viewpoint is saying what we should have been saying for decades about marriage and about families. We got work to do. We got to get our own house in order. Have we set the bar low or high for our children and for the generations to come? And what do we plan to leave for them? A lot to think about. It's worth the time and effort. So let's get after it. We'll talk to you next time.